Shrinkwrap Radio number 866, John Fredrickson, MSW, on Healing Through Relating. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous it's all in your head and now here's your host dr dave my guest today john Fredrickson, has been on the show several times before speaking about his books what i love about his books is that they are so practical for therapists rich with clinical examples and sample scripts. I would say he's a trainer's trainer. Even if you're not a therapist, I promise you, you will come away with a better understanding of the therapy process and yourself. Today, we'll be discussing John's latest book, Healing Through Relating. Now, here's the interview. John Fredrickson, welcome back to Shrinkwrap Radio. Well, thanks so much for having me on again. Yeah, well, I was just saying to you privately, but I want to be public about it, uh, how much I appreciate your work and appreciate you as a guest. You're one of one of my favorites, and uh, a lot of it has to do with the the well, both who you are and how you come across, but also these books that uh, we've discussed in previous episodes, and you write books that are so darn practical. Uh, for therapists, and and, in, and so the most recent book is uh, "Healing Through Relating," and the subtitle is a skill-building book for therapists. But uh, is it only for therapists, or could other people uh, benefit? I suspect a lot of people actually could benefit. It, you know, people people in uh, human relations. You know. Uh, human services, um, you know, any time where you're, when pe people have uh, defenses that could come up or things that would prevent them from forming a, a useful working relationship. Because a lot of what this skill building book is really dealing with the most common kinds of problems when you're just trying to establish a good working relationship in therapy. So I really wrote it as kind of a trans-theoretical book with the idea that it really doesn't matter what kind of therapy you do, whether it's cognitive therapy or behavioral therapy or dynamic therapy. Um, everybody's got to know how to recognize anxiety. Everybody's got to know how to regulate anxiety. Um, if people have trouble presenting a problem they want to work on, everybody's got to know how to work on that because if we don't have a clear problem declared, we don't have something to work on. Yeah. And and everyone's got to know how to deal with patients who are, are a little vague or patients who, 
Or how to deal with patients who attribute their will to change onto other people. Well, I'm here because of my wife or my husband. Or, yeah. What do, you, what do you think I should work on, you know? And, yeah. and so in a way, in a sense, you know, really all of us face the same problems. And, and all of us need the same skills, whether it's anxiety regulation, identification, getting a clear problem, uh, how to help patients who attribute their wish to get well to right. other people. Uh, all, we're all facing the same problems, and there's certain kind of basic skills really every therapist needs to know just to get a working relationship. And once you got the working relationship, yes, then our styles will go off in different directions because of emphases. So in a way, the book was designed that really to help any therapist get the most kind of basic skills. So it's got about 45 skills and skill building exercises, so you can really develop you know, say the 45 most basic skills you need just to get a working relationship, and then you can do your particular kind of therapy based on the working relationship you established. I remember back in the early days of my teaching, I was teaching out of a book called The Skilled Helper, and mm. uh, um, two famous guys, and Cherkov might be one, I can't remember their names, but mm -hmm. that was the one that first came across, and I think maybe they came from a Rogerian background, but, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the emphasis on skills, that skills are things that can be learned, and no matter what natural talents you have, which some people will have, uh, but even pro athletes have coaches and work on, on uh, getting their skills at an even higher level. So uh, I that's one reason why I'm so attuned to this approach uh, that you embody so well. And also it occurs to me that um, I know many of the people who listen to this show are not necessarily therapists, but they may be in therapy mm -hmm. or, or uh, they may be considering therapy. And, mm -hmm. and so I think this book would really be helpful to, to a very wide range of people, as, as you're suggesting. I agree. Yeah. Now you're on the faculty of the intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy training program, or the ISTDP. That's such a mouthful. No wonder it, it had to be abbreviated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the Washington School of Psychiatry. Right. Is, is the Washington School in Washington? Washington, D.C. It is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think we've already addressed this, but is your book only for ISTDP therapists? Oh, no. It's really, this is a skill building uh, book that's designed for any psychotherapist, regardless of model. Because, like I was saying, no matter what kind of therapy you do, you have to be able to identify and regulate anxiety. Um, yeah. What kind of therapy you need, you need to get is get established what's the problem the patient's uh, here to work on. Yeah. And, 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 and everybody has to deal with patients who may attribute their wish to do therapy onto other people or attribute that wish to the therapist. And, and it even has some studies on how to detect that the patient's thinking about dropping out. Every therapist needs to know how to detect that so yeah. you know can reduce dropout. So it's really designed as the basic skills that every therapist needs regardless of, uh, of the model of therapy uh, you're doing. Because, you know, today there are some deliberate practice uh, books that are coming out now 
with with some skill building exercises. Um, you know, for instance, if you want to do uh, learn certain skills in CBT or certain skills in other models, this one is trans theoretical. It's really just describing very concrete skills everybody yeah. everybody needs. Yeah, I love that that notion of trans theoretical. You know, that that will work. That people, regardless of what therapy. Uh, theory they're working under, they will find things that really apply to them. Um, mm -hmm. What can you tell us about the book structure? Uh, the book is is really structured kind of in terms of the sequence of skills you need in doing therapy. Uh -huh. When a patient first comes in, um, there are some patients where their anxiety is going to be too high. So with those patients, it's important to regulate anxiety right away. So so that they're regulated enough that they could do therapy, because a lot of, you know, about 70 percent of patients that come in, their anxiety is actually too high. And if we're not attuned to their anxiety symptoms, if we don't know how to assess their anxiety, they'll have trouble staying in treatment. So yeah. in a way, so in a way, I start right away with assessing anxiety, how to assess the bodily signs of anxiety and then how to regulate anxiety and then. How do you, when anxiety doesn't, regulation doesn't work, how to address the ways patients may avoid working together and regulating anxiety, or like they might want to ignore or dismiss their anxiety. So how do you help them pay attention to their anxiety so it can get regulated? Yeah, so it starts really first making sure, can we identify regulate anxiety? So this is really a safe working place to, to explore uh, troubling issues. Yeah, all this talk about uh, regulating anxiety brings to mind the fact that I interviewed just this past week uh, Stephen Porges and right. and his son, and they they've written a book together uh, that's all about uh, uh, creating safety, you know, and helping people manage anxiety. Um, and uh, you know, in in chapter one of your book, you raise a key question, uh, mm -hmm. which is, and this is a big question, what makes therapy work? Yeah. I'm going to put that question to you right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what makes therapy, therapy work is if the two of us are working together. Uh, a lot of times it's easy to forget therapy is really a working relationship, and that means the patient and therapist need to work together, and they need to have a clear idea of what's the what's problem that brings uh, the patient to treatment. Patients don't come to treatment because they want a deeper insight into their Oedipus complex uh, when they're in childhood. They come because they're suffering. So we want to know how is the patient suffering? What's the problem that motivates them to come to treatment? And then we try to develop an understanding of what's causing their problem. Because if we can get a, a consensus on their problem and what's causing the problem, then we can develop a treatment strategy that's really designed to, to resolve their problem. And so that requires us first to get make sure anxiety is regulated so this is a safe working place and to get some consensus on what the problem is. Now that might seem very simple, but the majority of our patients have learned that um, uh, asking for help hurt. Right, they wanted help, and helpers hurt them. So we have to remember that, given you know, you think about trauma, for example, right? The child who's had a trauma, they learn that their helper was someone who hurt them. So naturally, when the patient comes to us, they don't just come to us; they come with a history that helping hurt. So when you ask a patient what's the problem mm -hmm. they like help with, 
they may they may relate to us according to the rules of their background. They may have learned if I really reveal a problem, I get into trouble, I'll get punished, I'll get hurt. <gasps> so, so the patient really is operating on their old relational knowledge. And so yeah. when they come with, rather than reveal a, a problem, they'll actually try to collaborate with us according to the rules of childhood. And they learned if I collaborate best with my parents, I'll hide my problem. I'll pretend everything is fine, or I'll pretend my problem is no big deal. So when you ask a patient what the problem is, they might say, I have no problem. That's a way to collaborate with a parent who said, shut up. Or they might say, well, it's a problem, but it's no big deal, which yeah. is uh, collaborating with a parent who dismissed problems. Uh -huh. So it's important for us to understand that as soon as we invite a patient to depend, the history of dependency uh, comes up. Yeah. Now, of and course, so, there are also the patients who come and uh, and they really aren't oriented towards the idea that it's collaborative, uh, that they expect you to have a magic bullet. Yeah. You'll do the work. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, the, and that's also the history. It's like they learned that they had a traumatic figure, and if this relationship is going to work, the child had to do all the work. Okay. I'm right. They're, in a way, yeah. they're just telling us their relational history. Right. So in yeah. that way, it's helping the therapist, helping the therapist understand why, why do patients have trouble declaring a problem? Right. It's, it's nothing about you, but they're going to bring, when they come, they bring the relational history. And if you can understand that relational history, then you can understand um, their avoidance patterns and you yeah. don't take them and then you can learn how to address those avoidance patterns because in a way you're helping them learn to depend you're helping them learn to share a problem and that it's this is a relationship where actually it could be a helping relationship where they don't get hurt like they did in the past yeah so i'm going to take you through the main sections of your book and Great. uh and uh, you can kind of expand on them if that in any way that makes sense mm -hmm. uh, so so the first section has to do with developing the right to depend on someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. a, a lot of us have learned uh, that it's bad. We're trying to be independent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we've, got, we've gotten a strong message that we should yeah. be in, independent. So you call it a declaring a problem to work on. So uh, mm -hmm. what would you like to add to that? Right. It, well, in fact, in terms of dependency, it, all of us depend on other people. We live in a web of interdependency. So, right, this is like I depend on you to help me publicize my book. You depend on me to give you content for your podcast. In the very most simple way, we live in a world of interdependency. Right. When patients come to us, usually depending has led to pain. So in a way, the patient has learned, I shouldn't depend. I sh shouldn't have needs. So in a way, when we ask, what's the problem you'd like me to, uh, like me to help you with, uh, the patient may get anxious as if it'd be dangerous to share a problem. They may deny having a problem. They may change topics to avoid declaring a problem. And these are all ways of illustrating for us they don't think they have a right to have a problem. They act as if they don't have a right to depend. And they're just telling us, I didn't have the right to depend. I wasn't supposed to reveal a problem. So in a way, when we ask what the problem is, and we help them with their avoidance strategies, 
we're helping them develop an experience with us where they have a right to have a problem and they have a right to depend on us for help with their problem. Recognizing that as they depend on us for help with a problem, if depending in the past was dangerous, yes, they'll get anxious about declaring a problem with us. And so we'll regulate their anxiety and point out, so something about letting me know you have a problem, you want help with it, something about that triggers this anxiety. Do you notice that too? Yeah. And would you like to reclaim the right to get help with a problem here? Yeah, and you have a, a list of sort of step-by-step micro skills to lead them through growth in that area. And you do that in each of the issues that you raise. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and your stage two, developing the right to depend on someone. So that's kind of flows out of what mm-hmm. we just said, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and then declaring a problem to work on. So you kind of mm-hmm. have to coach them along to get to the place where they feel they have the right to have a problem. Yeah. And then, and then the courage to figure out what it is that they're wanting to work on, which isn't yeah. always easy. No, no. And it's not easy because if they've learned I shouldn't depend, I shouldn't declare a problem, then they might deny having a problem. They might be very vague. Uh, They might change topics, right? And they don't do any of this on purpose. It just happens automatically. And so we're we're just helping them notice automatic avoidance patterns that would prevent them from getting the help they need here. And there's no judgment at all, just helping them see how automatic avoidance strategies yeah, it would prevent them from getting the help they want here. Yeah, and, and, and you, you have a very good way of uh, being non-judgmental, which is really key to this, right, is to come Absolutely. in with a, to, to, to divorce them from the feelings of blame that they come in with. Absolutely. We have to remember that patients, if they had to adapt in the past by hiding problems, um, that that's a success. They figured out how to adapt. Thank heavens. So if you understand this was how, however they avoid declaring their problems was really the best attempt at adaptation of the past. And that's thank heavens. The fact they could adapt that way is why they're able to come to us. So there's no judgment over, over the fact that this is, this is the best learning. This is the best educational, you know, relational education they got. Yeah. We would kind of, this was, this is the relational knowledge. This is what they learned about how to relate, how to right. succeed. Uh, you have a, the third stage flows so naturally, each, each of these kind of leads into the next one. Developing mm-hmm. the right to depend on someone. No, no, mm-hmm. I already raised that one. Is it safe to have a separate mind and will in therapy? So stage yeah. three has to do with learning to declare one's will to work on the problem. That's right. You know, a lot of patients, particularly if they come from backgrounds of trauma, the the, parent would say, it's my way or the highway. If you don't like it here, there's the door. Or the abuser says, your will doesn't matter. I'm going to abuse you how I want. My will matters, your will doesn't. So oftentimes patients come to us with an underdeveloped ability to declare their will. So when you ask, you know, uh, is, is, this, is this something you want to focus on for your benefit? A patient may get quite anxious. And that lets us know, oh, it's been dangerous for this patient to declare their will. Or, or they may say things, well, what do you think I should do? 
And it's like they're inviting your will to dominate the relationship as someone dominated them in the past. Or, well, let's say, well, my husband thinks I should do this. Well, that may be what he wants, but what, what is it that you want for yeah. yourself? And the patient gets anxious, but they're, they're learning they have a right to a relationship now to declare their will and to have their own separate mind, separate from mine. Can this be a relationship where two minds can exist in the same room? Many patients come from backgrounds where there was only one mind allowed in the household. So as soon as the patient declares a separate opinion, she may get very anxious, she may cover it up, or she may doubt it. And so in that way, we're just helping her declare her will because in order for therapy to really work, it has to be guided by the patient's will, not the therapist's will. Yeah. That, that the patient's will is the driver of therapy. A lot of times where we therapists get into trouble is we think we know what's best for the patient, and so the patient should go here and then our will is driving the therapy, and then the patient is just compliantly going along. And so instead, we have to remember it's the patient's will that's the engine of therapy, and really to make sure that we've got their will mobilized so that the therapy is going according to where they want to go and, and according to their will. Yeah, yeah. And then another big issue that you move on to is... Uh, how to prevent dropouts from treatment. And I know this is something that uh, that beginners, particularly people who are therapists, uh, may suffer from anxiety about, oh my God, I'm not a good therapist. This person doesn't like me. It's not working. Help. Right. And so there's there's certain ways we can prevent dropout if we're making sure that it's the patient who declares the problem, not you, and if we make sure it's the patient's will, uh, not your will, and if we make sure the patient's anxiety is regulated, because if anxiety is not regulated, it just becomes too high for the patient to bear therapy. So if you're making sure it's the patient's problem, patients declare their will, and anxiety is regulated, that's going to make it much easier for a patient to stay in treatment. Uh, but there are also other problems that can occur. And one of, and so there's a set of studies in, in the uh, skill building exercises that are really designed to help you see very common problems uh, that where the patient actually is predicting they're going to drop out. So, for example, a patient might come to therapy and they're talking about their psychiatrist and say, this psychiatrist is not, he, he's not giving me the medication I want. He's not listening to me. I'm thinking of switching from him to another psychiatrist that oftentimes symbolizes this. Um, you're not giving me what I want. You're uh -huh. not listening to me. I'm thinking of leaving you so I could be to, with someone else that listens to me. So if you learn to listen to the symbolic meaning that it might refer to you, then you're picking up, oh, this patient might be getting ready to quit therapy. And then we can say, well, I noticed you're talking about psychiatrist is not giving you what you want and is not listening to you and you're thinking of leaving. I, I wonder, is there something that I'm not giving you? If there's some, and if there's something I'm not listening to that's making you thinking of leaving therapy? Because if there's something I'm, I'm not hearing, if there's something I'm not listening to, I really want to know about that. Yeah, so, so I'm struck by the, that you're non-defensive. You're, not, you're both you're non-judgmental and non-defensive, and those those are skills that really have to be learned. They don't necessarily come naturally. 
No, but that's where skill building exercises can really, when we have the words and we practice them, right? Because each of the skill building exercises is written in the book, but also each one has an audio exercise. So you can click on a link uh -huh. and, then, and then you do the skill building exercise with me and I play the patient and then you intervene as a therapist and you are practicing in real time with a patient. And in that way, you're practicing just like you would with a patient. And so in that way, it, you're literally practicing with me in the audios, in the audio studies, just like you would when you're learning a language. Like when you do languages, you learn with a language tape. Here you're learning skills with with this, uh, with a recorded uh, audio. So it's not just a book, but there are also no. ways right. to go online and, and have an interactive experience. That's right. So it's the, the the exercises are printed out, so you could practice them with a partner. Uh, they're an audio, so you could just do the audios with me, and each skill has an audio. And then uh, almost every exercise also has a video where I demonstrate with someone how we do the skill building exercises and talk about some of the issues that these exercises are related to. So there are videos you can watch. Uh, every skill building exercise has an audio version. So you can practice it on your own with me, or you can practice it with a partner in a class. So it's really designed, you can practice it on your own, you can use it in class, and there are professors that are now starting to use these in class too, because then class students can actually learn clinical skills in class. Yeah, I wish this had been available when I was a student back in uh, the days of, di of dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> it it would have been very, very useful to me yeah. and my growth and learning. You also got a, a, you raise the point, what do you do when you don't want to practice? I assume that, that doesn't mean that you don't want to practice therapy, but that you won't, don't want to do the practice exercises? That's right. Because, in, in, you know, people often uh, forget, uh, psychotherapy is something we do. Uh, psychotherapy involves a lot of skills. So these are skill building exercises. They're designed to help you build skills. So it'll, it'll, it'll be some, something like where you might ask the patient, what's the problem you'd like me to help you with? And in, the, and in the written section, it shows different avoidance strategies patients say, and then what you could say in response. So you begin to learn, oh, that's what I could say when a patient does that. Oh, that's how I could respond. And then, and then you can have a friend who plays the patient, and then you might read those answers and then your friend would do it again as a patient and then you would come up with your own words see if you're remembering the skill and practicing that skill and building that skill just like you would uh, practice a skill if you were an athlete or if you were a musician for example and so each of these exercises they're really designed to take you through a whole bunch of the patient uh, avoidance strategies or anxiety responses so you learn how to respond to each of those so there's like 45 different skills wow. there's you there's usually about 12 different responses for each one so it really presents you with almost 600 uh clinical situations to respond to all of those so it really gives you such a broad set of skills that it really sets you up where you can you know basically be able to get a working alliance uh, with a patient as the first step of therapy. And you can do this any place in the world, right? You don't have any to be where you're located. No, no, because you have the book, you can practice it with a partner, right? It's a partner exercise. You can practice it in a class. 
or you can practice it online just with me anywhere in the world because the internet's available to everyone if you got a phone or you use it on your phone or your computer and then practice these skill building exercises where I would be playing the patient and you'd be learning how to respond to the patient who does these different responses. Yeah, I'm really struck by your generosity. I mean, this seems like uh, this is like a, a graduate school uh, experience, really. It really is. And, but I think you and I can understand. I mean, when we started out, we learned theory, but we weren't always seeing how theory tra translated in practice. And I know myself, I kept wondering, what do I do? What do I say? And Exactly. I, and I had a teacher one day said, well, John, you have to realize psychotherapy is an art. Well, I was a classical musician. I was playing with the National Symphony that week. I knew that as a musician, you really need a lot of skills. And I realized, wow, this is a, this is a field that is not focused enough on just the practical skills that, that we need. And, uh, and so skill building books like this, I think, are really the future. It's, and we see that now uh, in the whole area of deliberate practice. What are skills we can practice in a deliberate way? Yeah. And of course, just like anything else, if you're practicing to be a musician, a sculptor, or a football player, it, it's hard to practice these skills, right? It, it takes a certain dis discipline. But, and so we, you know, but if you practice like just 15 minutes a day, a half hour a day, pretty soon your skill set improves a great deal. And there's recent research by Clara Hill where it's really showing that if therapists work on specific skill building exercises, yeah, the effectiveness of, of their work will improve. So it's, it's really a fantastic way to improve. Even if you can't afford supervision right now, even if you can't afford to go to class, you could buy a book and develop your skills until that point that you can afford a supervisor or a class. And if, if people are trainers themselves or a supervising therapist, et cetera, you've even got a teacher's guide for using the exercises in class. So you could give them some guidance for, okay, you, you're a teacher, here's how you do it. Exactly. And each skill building exercise, once the students finish it, there's a set of uh, what we would call metacognitive questions that teachers can ask students as a way to help them integrate the new learning that they're, that they're getting. So, so then the teacher has the metacognitive questions that will help students integrate oh, what's, going, what's going on. So, and then there, as you say, there's a guide at the end of the book to support teachers in how to use skill building exercises in class. Because this is actually new. Most teachers have never used skill building exercises. So there is a certain kind of set of skills in, in using them in class. So fortunately for teachers who are new to this, new to introducing deliberate practice, then the metacognitive questions at the end of each exercise give you the structure you need in order to help students integrate new knowledge. And the guideline at the end also helps you anticipate typical kinds of problems that happen with skill building and, and how to handle those problems. Well, this is really on the cutting edge of psychotherapy training, I would say, because uh, I don't know how long the, the idea of deliberate practice has been out there, but uh, I'm not sure that it's been out there long enough to really change things across the board with, with how therapy is taught. It's true, you know, this kind of deliberate practice or simulation experiential practice is very big in medicine now. 
Um, you know, they used to have this problem where in, in, in July you'd have uh, mortality rates going up in hospitals because you have the new clinicians. And so now in some specialties, uh, students uh, who are going to go onto the unit learn the six most important skills in a boot camp. And they, they learn just six skills and then they come, come, come onto the unit. As a result, mortality rates dropped in many specialties. So in medicine, this kind of specific skill building training, simulation-based training, has really begun to revolutionize uh, education and medicine. Now we just have to do the same thing to really, um, really translate theory into practice so that students are learning the very specific skills they need in the field of therapy. I think, I think that is the new wave uh, in psychotherapy education. Yeah, I'm convinced that you're right about that. And uh, again, underscoring your generosity, I was struck to see that uh, you take therapists online, uh, you take therapist questions online at mm -hmm. www.facebook.com mm -hmm. forward slash dynamic psychotherapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so the therapist will oftentimes contact me with a question about a case, and then I, I will comment on the case and how we would think about it and how you might consider intervening. Yeah. Well, that's just great. Well, John Fredrickson, I, as I said before at the beginning, I'm so impressed by your work, your generosity, your contributions, and um, God bless you, and mm. thank you for being my guest on Shrinkwrap Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me again. It's, it's always a pleasure. As I'm sure you know, I usually like to leave a commentary about my impressions of the interview, but technical difficulties have left me short on time. I believe it will be quite clear to anyone who listened to my interview with John Fredrickson, MSW, that I'm quite enthusiastic about both him and his latest book. Dr. Dave, it's Rob Kenora. I apologize for not calling sooner, but I did want to take the time to encourage you to continue your podcast. Uh, love listening on a regular basis and to encourage all your listeners who have not already to take the time to make what should be a one-time donation if you've only listened to one podcast. But if you're a regular listener like me, I encourage you to make an ongoing donation to support your continuing efforts and all the time and uh, effort, obviously, that you put into to delivering such a wonderful regular update on all things psychological. Thanks again for your hard work, and keep it up. Thank you, Rob Kenora, for being such a long-term and dedicated listener. You have really put your money where your mouth is, as they say. I hope others will do the same. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's repeat guest, John Fredrickson, MSW, for yet another book filled with practical examples and scripts for therapists and those in training. This book, like his others, is so clear that it will benefit not only those in therapy, but also the therapy curious. And I love his commitment to make his books trans-theoretical. That is, they will be beneficial regardless of the theoretical orientation of your therapist or you as a therapist. 
I had lined up a guest for next week's interview, but they had to postpone for medical reasons. I have a couple of potential replacement candidates, but I'm waiting to hear if they're available. So rather than hold us up, I'm going to get the interview with John Fredrickson up and out of here. So until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.